0: Hi, welcome back to The CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor CIO. With great power comes great responsibility. And there are a few technologies driving today's fast evolving digital landscape as powerful as artificial intelligence. From anticipating consumer buying decisions to predicting political outcomes, speeding discovery and treatment for disease, who we should date and marry, deciding who gets a job or a home loan, AI is on a fast track to touch virtually every aspect of work, life and play. The possibilities for augmenting human capability and endeavor are indeed very exciting while the potential for harm is also now an important topic of conversation okay joining us now is ed santa who's the human rights commissioner ed welcome to the cio show
1: it's great to be with you
0: also coming back to the show we have dr ian opperman chief data scientist for the new south Wales government ian hi
2: great great to be back
0: awesome and marie johnson Director and Chief Digital Officer with the Centre for Digital Business. Murray. welcome back to the CIO David, Show, to you again.
3: David, great to join you. Fantastic, and
0: if I can start with you, this Human Rights Commission report on um, human rights and technology is really makes for some compelling reading and really raises some serious red flags with regard to the use of AI in Australia, as well as biometric technologies such as facial recognition. Can you give us a bit of a rundown on, on that report?
1: Yeah, look, um, it's a major report. It will be the largest report that I'm responsible for in my time as Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. And it started uh, just over three years ago when um, we at the Human Rights Commission realised that we're all living through uh, a quiet revolution. Um, The smartphones that most of us hold in our pockets um, are literally millions of times more powerful than the computers that took... Uh, Apollo 11 to the moon, Mm -hmm. Um, and that that massive increase in computing power um, has all kinds of implications that that some of those implications are positive. There there are ways in which uh, artificial intelligence is making our world more inclusive um, in terms of communications, but also for, for example, people with disability, but for every one of those examples, there's a dark side. There are Mm -hmm. serious risks and threats, including to our human rights. And it's my melancholy duty as Human Rights Commissioner (laughs) to perhaps focus a little bit more on those risks and threats, Um, not least because we felt that they hadn't um, been considered rigorously enough. We felt that there had been good consideration over the last few years about the risk to the right to privacy. But there's a range of other rights about how AI can be used fairly or not um, that really needed to be um, considered in more depth. So what our report does is it does that. It provides some really clear findings about human rights implications and a roadmap for change so that we can um, have AI um, that delivers the, the sort of future that we want and need, not the one we fear.
0: You also went a bit further in calling for a moratorium on, on the use of these te- on, of AI and, and biometric technologies.
1: We, w- what we did was we said um, on the whole Uh, the laws are about right at the moment. They need to be applied more effectively to ensure that AI is fair, accurate, and accountable. But we did also say that there were some areas where there were high-stakes uses of AI and high-risk uses of AI, and they need to be regulated directly. And so I think what you're alluding to there is our work on facial recognition and biometric technology. And so I acknowledge that there are some uses of facial recognition that are relatively low risk. Again, you probably, uh, many uh, of your listeners probably use facial recognition in their smartphones to unlock their smartphones. And that's one-to-one facial recognition. Mm -hmm. Security of that information is critically important but it's Mm -hmm. relatively low risk. By contrast, if you use facial recognition to identify someone in a crowd, what's known as one-to-many facial recognition, and you use it in a high stakes area like policing to identify criminal suspects. That is something we're more concerned about. And we're concerned about it for two reasons. First, that um, the, the technology itself may be improving, uh, but it is less accurate probably than anyone you know who isn't blind.
0: Right. Okay. And so it
1: is, it's got a very high false positive rate, especially for people of color, women, and people with physical disability. So we should be wary about it for that reason. But we're also wary about it for a bigger reason, which is that even if the technology were perfectly accurate, we need to be very careful that we don't embrace that sort of technology so um, enthusiastically that we move towards a, a kind of a pathway that ends with mass surveillance. Sure. Because I don't yeah, think it's, Australians it's, want that. So, so that's a, it's a limited moratorium that we're calling for there. So yeah. in respect of the use of facial recognition uh, right. in particular in those high-stakes, high-risk areas until there are proper te- protections
0: in place. Sure. I mean, and there's there's no doubt that there's been innumerable examples of, of bias and discrimination that come out of various AI systems, particularly in the US, it seems. Not so much in Australia, although people are sort of holding up the, the robo-debt um, fiasco or debacle as as an example of it. Um, One of the the things you call for as well is is for an AI safety commissioner or office for an AI safety commissioner. And um, over to you, Ian, you're kind of a bit ahead of the curve in this regard. You've effectively um, spearheaded a similar initiative albeit state-based for New South Wales with your AI advisory committee. And Ed, I understand you also sit on it, but back to you, Ian.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so we are very fortunate to have uh, an an AI committee which was established as part of the New South Wales AI strategy. New South Wales have been moving down a certain pathway with AI for some time. There were lots of homegrown uh, projects and there was lots of thinking that AI was was only about ethics. Uh, In 2019, we actually pressed pause on where we were going and reconsidered our strategy. We came up with a, a number of elements that we thought we needed to put in place. We need to ensure that we were having a data driven conversation and that we really thought about the total life cycle of data and use of data in AI. We also realized we needed to connect with the world of standards. We needed to build assurance frameworks, which were repeatable and usable for AI projects. But we also committed to two other uh, important aspects. One is that we would hold an AI summit every year where we, we tell people what we're doing and keep bringing some use cases back. And we would form this AI committee Now, the AI committee, I have to say, is is populated with amazing people, including Ed Santel. And I I think we're really really fortunate to have Ed on the committee. Uh, We've also got some very technical people. We've got people who deeply understand how AI actually works and are looking at issues like explainability. Uh, We have people who understand policy. We have people who who understand the law. And so together, what we've got is a, 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 a brains trust who can give us friendly but critical feedback as we look at the projects that we have in place. And we don't have a, a, an AI safety commissioner in New South Wales. We do have privacy commissioners, we have an information commissioner, and we've got a chief data scientist. So working together with the information and privacy commissioners and with our AI committee, I think we've got some of the elements that Ed called out for in the report. And, but I think the, the report actually does go further and says there's a, there's a need for a coordinating role at a Commonwealth level. Yeah. And I hope that that's built on some of the successes we've had in New South Wales. But I certainly see it as a very complementary piece of work.
0: Yeah, and and uh, and you, you and I. Well, previously you've shared with me an expression that I that I really love in this, in, in the context of this conversation, um, understanding the, the the relationship between principles and bits. And if I could just bring you in <laughs> here, um, in in here, Mari. We we were speaking, we have spoken many times over the past in, in the past about. Your work with the um, Nadia AI-driven avatar that was to be sort of one of the sort of key features of the NDIS, and and uh, and then of course you and I were also recently speaking about um, something that's going on more recently within that that agency, and, and, and no doubt a well-intended initiative, but um, effectively one which is sort of dehumanising um, um, people who are relying on that on that program by. Uh, trying to represent them in terms of algorithms. Can you tell me a little bit about, share with us that experience?
3: Yeah. Um, in fact, just came out of this, or came off estimates, <laughs> Watch, yeah. watching it this afternoon, great Friday afternoon. Um, yeah,
0: wow, good to life. Um,
3: yeah, well, <laughs> well, my background here goes back to the access card, you know, um, back in 2007, in doing biometrics and, um, you know, the, the realisation that... Um, uh, the flaws within these technologies and um, and what happens when um, the um, people on the edge, if you like, um, people who are vulnerable, um, people who are underrepresented, um, what impact that might have on them. And so um, so my sort of interested experience has sort of been built up over a very long time in, in this space um, when we could talk a lot about Nadia but what is really impressive I think about the work that um, Ed and his team have done in this report and I do think it's one of the landmark reports um, in Australia probably the first of its
0: kind it, globally yeah, you were saying it.
3: yeah, yeah um, I, I think it is really you know something of the decade if I could yeah. put it that way yeah um, and it will challenge government agencies and what is happening, for example, when we spoke about robo debt, what we're seeing now with um, the NDIS is the development of what they call personas and the construction of an algorithm model yeah. uh, in order to automate um, decision-making around a budget for people with disability. Yeah. Now, I mean, I've, I've written publicly about this, so, you know, um, what, I, what I say is that because there has been no co-design in that, um, and it's basically an internally driven model, there will be bias baked in. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, you, I mean, my, my daughter is a NDIS participant, so just being transparent there. So I know the system extremely in detail from the internal operations and also from a, um, a family uh, navigating it. And even with all my knowledge of the system, internally we had a horrific experience horrific and that and we engaged solicitors and that's with everything I know about it mm. absolutely we faced what I could call a grave situation
1: yeah. Yeah.
3: so looking at that um, you know automating decisions, where there is bias baked in, and there will always be bias baked in, but where there is no ethics framework, and there is not, then what is the control framework for this? Then, so that's at the Commonwealth level. But when you think about that, um, uh, people with disability or uh, any people in similar categories, there are multiple layers of um, impact of these algorithms, and that's why I think, Ed, your um, proposal for this office is phenomenally important because not only is the challenge of algorithms goes beyond a CIO, uh, there's certainly not um, the only one accountable, there is a whole governance framework around this, but even across a government operation, a government entity or government sort of administration There are multiple layers of this, and I do think it does need to be considered uh, in this this way. Uh, Is a particular community so significantly disadvantaged by the application of algorithms um, that justice is... They've got no access to the fulfilment of justice. Now, on the other hand, I would also say, in the other parts of your report, I am almost a zealot in the in the technology in some ways mm. because likewise it is a liberator Yeah, you know and so we do have these um two dimensions if you like and I think your report really well calls that out yeah
0: and Ian, it puts me in mind of something you mentioned to me recently pretty much at the stage where we were in the electricity market back in the Thomas Edison days sure
2: yeah the potential of AI is, is really quite phenomenal uh, one of the things I, I do in my spare time is, is think about uh, 6G mobile communications, uh, which is targeted for 2030. We've got 5G now. In 2020, we had 5G. We get a G every 10 years like clockwork.
0: Yeah.
2: And so we're, we're imagining the world of 2030 and how complex networks are and how much data flows in different directions and how the value models are actually quite dramatically. AI is pervasive in the thinking. For future networks and whether it's actually 6G mobile or not, uh, just the future of communication networks means that there's so much intelligence needed throughout the network for local optimization, for anomaly detection, for, for personalization, localization. It's it's inevitable that we will be using AI everywhere. Today, we tend to have closed systems, not, not everywhere, but we tend to have closed systems with, with discrete actions or discrete decisions being taken. Mm. But as we move forward, it's it's really going to be everywhere. So my analogy to electricity is quite simply that we've discovered that this stuff is useful. We've discovered that sometimes things can go very badly wrong, but we certainly don't know everything about it. We can't fully characterize it. So we haven't yet built the safety systems in place that allow us to safely use AI ubiquitously. So we're, we're still looking at things very much from a case by case perspective and starting to build out those standards. We enable any
3: organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers, connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation.
0: What we're staring down the barrel of is this becoming an exp- seeing exponential growth in the deployment of this technology over the years and um yeah there's, there's no telling how large this beast could get um before people turn around and say hey we should have um paid more attention at the beginning then maybe yeah what are your thoughts there ed
1: i, I think that's right um I, I like ian's description of us being at the kind of thomas edison yeah. stage of development um, and the more we go down a particular path, um, the harder it is to walk it back. Um, mm-hmm. If we get some of these decisions wrong um, right now, and, and that's why I feel that that this year really matters, and it matters for three reasons. Um, the the first is uh, I, I think our process, which which ended up being the most extensive. Uh, consultation anywhere in the world on the human rights and social implications of AI. What it really showed is that our community's understanding of AI is shifting radically and rapidly. Mm-hmm. So people are just now starting to glimpse what is truly at stake, um, that there are a number of human rights that are, um, are really fundamental beyond privacy to go to our equality um, and fairness um that can be um either advanced or undercut by ai and we have to make a choice now so that that's one of the key reasons and the other key reason is um that the the regulation is changing so we've said that there are a whole bunch of laws that are already in place but that haven't been applied effectively that that should um operate to make sure that ai um is fair uh, accurate and accountable and that's starting to change so the the laws Uh, um, the regulators are starting to apply those laws more effectively. And that's a good thing. Um, And we are a regulator at the Human Rights Commission. We take that really seriously, as do others. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're also seeing new laws being drafted. So um, less than two months ago, the European Union announced a um, plan for a new um, AI law that would apply across Europe with no doubt a kind of a penumbral effect that spreads well beyond Europe. And it has those principles of fairness and accountability right at the very centre. And so we need to get ahead of that um, for that reason as well. Um, but that's a, that's a kind of pragmatic reason. The principal reason is it's the right thing to do. And mm. if we want to make sure that the AI that we have is um, fair, uh, accurate and accountable, then we actually need to take the steps that will be necessary to achieve that result.
0: Yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of sounding overly acute, it really is what do people, or organizations, what recourse do they have when the computer says no?
2: Well,
1: exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, if you, if you have an opaque system um, that, that is, is making decisions using AI and you're, you're left with the unsettling feeling um, when you re- receive your decision, have I received a negative decision because of something that I can't control, like my race or my age or my gender or my disability? Um, our legal system operates to allow you to try and get to the bottom of it and to Mm -hmm. to work out whether the decision was lawful or whether it was discriminatory on the basis of of one of those sorts of characteristics. And if all you can do is say, no, the reason you were knocked back for the decision is, as you say, the computer says no, then that is a huge untold threat Mm -hmm. to something as fundamental as the rule of law. Because mm. there is no rule of law unless you can be confident that the decision in question was lawful. And you can't be confident the decision was in question was lawful if you can't get the reasons for it. You can't understand that the, the basis for it.
0: Yeah, and, and it really does sort of highlight you know the, the risks of, of being complacent and delaying in starting to you know um, document an audit, what we're doing with AI. I think you were about to jump in there, do to hope I didn't interrupt you.
3: No, 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 no. No, the, the, the topic of an audit, um, I think, is something I'm quite interested in. And um, I think Stanford were doing some work for the United States um, in in the area of having a, a algorithm audit, for example. And um, many years ago, like in the late 90s, so this is going back, you know, a long while, when online was first happening, the, uh, the Victorian government and then a, a lot of other governments started to do what they called transaction audits to get an understanding about mm-hmm. how many um, of these interactions between citizens and government or business and government would go online. So it established a, um, um, a benchmark, what we were working with. And, and I sort of think that's um, it's part of where we are in this uh, sort of AI era um, and audit is incredibly important, and I I'm just wonder how we actually go about doing that. Um, but I think it's something that really needs to be done, and if you, if you don't do it and you don't know where algorithms or AI are being used, then the black box is even worse because you don't even know that you have black boxes. So, you know, so I think there's some there's some fundamental governance um that we're really talk, talking about here. Um, so anyway, so that was that was what I was about to respond to. To say I think uh, uh, an audit uh, is incredibly important, and then decisions can be made about um, those those technologies. And the other thing that I mean, I'd also uh, like to share is that I also believe there's got to be some sort of traceability of um, what those algorithms are, what technology companies they come from, uh, what what is their um, heritage, if you like, um, and whether or not technology companies can't claim clean hands once they've sold it on. Yeah. So I think you know there's all that to be looked, looked at as well.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, if we if we're talking about you know, it seems like a very sensible idea, the notion of a AI safety commissioner for the country. Then if we accept that, then it's not that big a jump to think of um, organizations, particularly big organizations, actually having um, safety AI safety employees within their IT departments. Um, and of course, we don't want to underestimate the um, you know the, the, the challenges that many organizations have ahead of them in terms of managing um, the impacts of AI. But Ian, back to you. I mean, you're somebody who's sort of right at the coalface of, of actually implementing this these kind of frameworks. You know within a, a large organisational structure. I'm just wondering what your advice to CIOs might be.
2: Yeah, so part of what we, as, as New South Wales put its, uh, it's AI strategy forward, we realised a couple of things. One is that there's a great deal of work already being done in the world of standards that we could draw from. So there's been a commitment with every smart strategy we put out, whether it's AI, or whether it's smart city, smart places, or in fact now this year, the New South Wales, a data strategy that will link to ongoing work in the world of standards. In fact, we'll even try and push some of that work along to help not only drive a, a view which is appropriate for Australia, make sure that an Australian perspective gets in, but also benefit from the work being done, first point. Now, the second point is, we realise that we really need to think about the entire life cycle of data. Now, Marie was just talking about the life cycle of an algorithm that's a that's an interesting perspective. We've been thinking about the life cycle of data. So from the point where we create, we choose this data, we create this data, uh, we, we transmit it, we store it, and we analyze it, being able to bring along with that data itself, the metadata associated with how do we collect it? What conditions do we collect it under? What's the chain of consent? What's the chain of handling, the, the chain of provenance? And what is the data quality ac- across each one of those different phases? And when we put it into the algorithm, is that quality fit for purpose for what the algorithm needs? Is it 91 octane or 98 octane? And does our algorithm need 91 or 98? And if we put 91 and it needs 98, mixing my analogies a bit, how far can we take that analogy? How far can we use that insight? Yeah. So that that those systems actually don't exist at the moment. And it really was quite surprising when I started looking into the world of standards. There are standards for cybersecurity risk frameworks. There are standards for information management. There there are not the holistic sets of uh, of, of additional requirements we need to increasingly safely be able to say, this data is fit for purpose, I'm authorized to have it, and I know what's happened to it along its journey as I feed it into my algorithm. We tend to take data that we have available, we tend generalization, we tend to just feed it into algorithms, and we, we tend not to think about what we can't see in the data, the data shadows, We tend not to think too hard about why this data and not other data sets. And increasingly, we're getting better at thinking about how far can we use that data driven insight. But still, there are challenges in that space. So there's a lot more work to be done. The advice for CIOs, think about the entire data lifecycle, work on data quality as a no regrets activity, and think about why you actually want the algorithm to deliver an insight. What is the outcome you're seeking to achieve, and actually work backwards from the outcome all the way through. But no regrets activities, improve data governance, improve understanding of privacy, improve data quality.
0: Yeah, and there was there was something something in a report that, that jumped out. I mean, maybe because I'd written some articles recently about um, in, interaction between human resources and the tech sector, and it was one of the one of the um, recommendations that um, there should be a body to help organizations develop tools to um, more ably assess the impacts of AI on staff through the human resources lens. Tell me a bit more about your thinking there.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we, we talk about um, human rights impact analysis from a number of different angles. Um, and uh, what one of the, 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 the key elements when um, a, a company or a government agency is uh, implementing a new system that relies on AI for decision-making is that ultimately, it can be reasonably junior or inexperienced staff that are responsible for using AI to make decisions. And um, I guess there's there's something implicit there that I'm just gonna wanna make explicit. And that is that on the whole, um, we use AI-powered data points to make decisions more frequently than we wholly automate a decision entirely using AI. So in other words, more frequently there's a human decision maker and she or he um, is wrangling a bunch of data points to make the decision. Some of them will use AI, some of them won't. And so um, that decision maker needs to understand some basic information about what, um, how AI works, what might be reliable, where they may need to seek some further guidance when they get a data point yeah. that may oh, not look quite right. Um, and and, and that, that's critically important. And so uh, I think um, it's all very well to have a big, shiny new AI system in a company or a government agency. Yeah. But you need to train your staff to use it safely and effectively. It's a bit like saying, you know, I'm going to buy, you know, a brilliant new Rolls-Royce car. But I'm not gonna learn how to drive. I'm just gonna kind of learn as I go. I'm just gonna drive it around and you ding it up and everything. That'd be really sad. Um, yeah. but but in this case, the 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 victim, you know, the victims would be the, the, the customers or the the citizens who are enacting yeah. who are interacting with the, the, the agency. And so it's, so that's vitally important.
0: You know, it's interesting. A lot of the big tech vendors, I mean, we could we could sort of um, i pick on Google there for a second that they, you know, a lot of their marketing rhetoric is around this democratization of, of data and empowering anyone in your organization to do more and more important work. But you know, as you say, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. We need to be mindful of the whole of the children running around with N16s. I mean, there's another weird analogy for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think the idea that everything is a plug and play model and that's safe is, Mm-hmm. a dangerous fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, We advocate taking a risk-based approach, which is how most of Australia's legislation is drafted and indeed how uh, Europe's new AI uh, regulation um, is gonna be drafted. Um, and so if you're engaging in some low stakes activity, if you're developing a new computer game, let's say, then we're not too worried about it going wrong because what are the consequences, right? By contrast, if you're developing a system that's going to make momentous decisions um, that really affect people's lives, then you need to get it right. You need to test it effectively, um, but you also need to make sure that the way in which you implement it is going to give you the sorts of results that may be um, achieved in the kind of lab, in the, in the test centre where Everything is optimised, and, and all of the people operating the system yeah. are knowledgeable about um, the, the technology.
0: Just on that, on that U- European AI code, is my understanding that that's that's a voluntary code? Is that right? Ed?
1: Um, look, it's still in development. Yeah. Um, it would not be a voluntary code; it would be um, it would be a law. Um, right. So there, there'll be some voluntary aspects to it because. Um, in order for a risk-based approach to work, you, you need to have an assessment um, at, at different stages of um, how risky um, the activity is. So for example, to, t- to take something that's operating in Canada. Now, when um, if you're a government agency in Canada and you want to use uh, an automated system, or an AI-powered system, then you kind of go through a traffic light um, system. So you you basically Um, identify whether it's um, high, medium or low risk based on the context. So if you're, you know, as as they did in Canada, if you're using automation to process visa applications to, you know, get into the country, that's a high risk situation because, Mm -hmm. you know, it engages a bunch of human rights. You know, if you're, if you're you're knocked back and you can't meet up with your spouse and your children, that's a devastating impact. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that in turn sets out, uh, it leads to higher um, obligations or more significant obligations on the um, on the agency that's responsible. So if you get that initial traffic light assessment wrong um, that's a real problem right because you then end up saying oh well no this is very low risk um, yeah. and then you have lower obligations. So that's that 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 is quite important so you want people to do it really diligently and
0: conscientiously. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the fact that we have these AI, AI ethics principles um, that were drafted up by the, by the government a couple of years ago, and the fact that they're, they're voluntary—I mean, that must be, yeah, that must be of, of, of additional concern, and perhaps partly motivated this report. Yeah.
1: Well, I think there is a place for AI ethics. There's a very important place for AI. Ethics.
0: Oh yeah, we're not disputing that. But this, yeah, but the fact but a voluntary code. Was, what you're saying is, in in Europe, there's you know there are real laws yeah. that are close to being passed there. Well, that's it. So
1: in every other field of activity, the orthodox approach, and that has existed for literally hundreds of years, um, is you start by asking the question, what does the law require? Yeah. Um, and you have a regulatory ecosystem with courts and regulators and people that help citizens um, enforce those laws. But then you acknowledge that the law shouldn't try and cover every um, significant activity. Um, yeah. There are gaps in the law, and some of those gaps are appropriate. They're, they're meant to be there because you, you don't want to regulate out of existence. Mm. And so that's where ethical frameworks can provide such useful work. That's It's, it's filling the interstices of the law to guide better decision making. But what we've had um, in the discussion about AI ethics is this frankly bizarre um, notion, which is that there is no law. Um, and so we, we're relying on governments and, and companies to take an ethical approach, which is essentially like this you know, really, it's, it's a nightmare scenario if you mm. take that um, seriously. It takes you to this Hobbesian kind of uh, endpoint where it's, you know, survival of the strongest. Um, mm. And that's not the way a liberal democracy works. Um, can, can I give a, an illustration just to make that more co- concrete, right? Um, I, I've said this with in Ian's company once before. If you imagine a woman wants to get a bank loan. Um, she walks to a bricks and mortar bank. She arrives at the, the bank and she sees this big sign in the window saying, we don't take female customers. Now that is clearly discriminatory. That is clearly unlawful. We, no one in Australia would be under any illusions about that, right? But let's say it's an algorithm that has yeah. the same effect, yeah. that she applies for a bank loan yeah. and it's the algorithm yeah. that misfires. And that's the reason she doesn't get the bank loan. I would say that is no different. That is just as unlawful. That is as, as problematic um, and the law is the, is, is the domain. But too often we say, oh, well, that's an ethical issue. And this isn't just a semantic problem. It's, it, it's a much deeper problem because if you describe something as an ethical issue, then it's a choice. The bank might decide to fix it or it might not. Um, Whereas if we're talking about the law, the bank has to fix it. And that's the difference.
0: Mari, you were trying to jump in there. Sorry.
3: (laughs) I just love this conversation. Um, When I was a very, very young woman, I was denied a bank loan. (laughs) <laughs> um, oh, I'm by, sorry. I hope I'm
1: not uh, pressing a bruise there, Mari. Oh <laughs> uh, no,
3: no, no, no. Uh, si- simply because I was already had a baby, and I was young. So anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but but your example is absolutely right. And the the question around, um, if you like, the governance um, say within within an organisation um, about about this. My my experience is that. Um, The issue of whether it's lawful often does not even come into um, design, right, right, Right? Um, you know, whether that design is sort of, you know, a a technical, which is why I tend to emphasise co-design. And so I think this is where the whole robo debt, maybe there's lessons from that, Um, Mm -hmm. On, on the design of it. So if you ask the CIO um, uh, about, about this, pretty much everybody would stand back and say, you know, um, that's uh, I'm not responsible for the whole show. Um, and so the lawfulness of what is being done, um, as well as the ethics of it, because as public sector organizations, um, if you're thinking about public sector, there is the role of being a model litigant. Um, you know in in these things what does that do to the principle of being a model litigant if you have got a powerful algorithm that you can not only not explain but you've got a governance structure of which there is absolutely vague or if no accountability so this this is really important stuff and I really think that the what what your report has done is, it needs to cause these conversations to happen within agencies, and this is where there is a lot of, from a human resources perspective, a lot of training and um, development that needs to happen of people who are involved in this.
0: Back to you, Ian. Again, you know, someone who's you know really got his hands dirty and is in the trenches with this. <laughs> what, 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 what should CIOs be thinking or, or doing now, or is it, is it? sort of such a kind of regulatory and legal void at the moment that they can't really do anything. Oh.
2: Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, To Ed's point, I, I don't think there is a void. Uh, now we've had quite a few discussions about this over the, over the years, Ed um, and myself, and the, the fact that the law exists means that the law exists. The challenge is of course that, that connecting when I, when I link this data set with, with this data set have I broken the law Have I violated a risk framework? Have I violated a principle? Or or, you know, really, have I violated law? That's where things get difficult. That's the point about connecting the principles and the bits. There's a really important way that at least I found to think about this. And that's, again, to reframe problems in terms of outcomes. What outcome are we looking to achieve? Mm. And if that outcome is informed by data and informed by an algorithm, and we deliver an outcome, in fact, maybe we deliver an adverse version of that outcome, then if we do the reverse process, We've got an adverse outcome and we take away the algorithm, maybe, and we still got an adverse outcome, then maybe it's the data. But if we take away the data and we've still got an adverse outcome, then it's something else. It's actually either the policy setting or the intention yeah. is wrong or we've misunderstood oh, the problem. So idea. so there is a role, I think, for standards with a big S and a small s in, in understanding that data lifecycle. There's a role for standards in understanding big S, small s, what algorithms do to data. And there should be standards about how, how far you could trust a result, what, what confidence you've got in the result. But if you like, what we're doing is creating hopefully better tools which deliver insights faster from a wider range of areas and maybe unlock things we've not known before, but ultimately how we use them and whether or not that drives us towards or away from the outcome we want to achieve, that's the real issue. And to the point about uh, the, the bank loan, if, a, if an algorithm said, um, we will not give you a loan because you're a woman and that's derived from data and an algorithm people would say bad computer computer said no we don't accept that let's let's examine the algorithm let's examine the data and find out why it's doing that but interestingly i think a consequence of all this scrutiny on the decision-making process from machines has one really nice positive outcome and that's thinking about what decisions we're actually trying to achieve so if a human said no person says no then the ability to unpack that has, to some extent, been put aside historically, unless there's there's really a lot of pressure put on put on understanding that decision.
1: Yeah.
2: But, whereas I think now our expectations are actually rising because we have the potentially we have the ability to have explainable AI because we have the ability to talk about that traceability because we're starting to expect it from our tools. I think we're starting to expect it more and more from when people are generating insights. From data, or in fact, if people are generating insights without data, so I think that overall the tide is rising, and that's that's got to be a good thing. Yeah,
0: and I think was it was it in in the um, human rights commission report Ed there was a, a reference to a uh, a recent trial within the uh, police force in the US that um, returned an alarming proportion of false positives, and and that was quite recent. Just to sort of remind ourselves of of, of uh, and also just to reiterate, reiterate what you were saying that we really are at the beginning of a, a long journey
1: here? Yeah, it was London Metropolitan Police. I oh, um, was we'll, we'll drop them yeah. in. Right? Yeah, the most famous police force <laughs> of the world. All right. Um, and they, that was in 2018. So they had a 98% false positive rate um, when they used facial recognition to identify suspects using one-to-many facial recognition. Yeah. Um, and the really interesting thing from that, I mean, there are so many interesting things in that trial. It only came out under Freedom of Information law mm-hmm. the, the, the results um i would have thought <laughs> that if uh, uh i've been responsible for something like that i would have pressed pause and said gosh we really need to rethink this mm-hmm. but less than two years later um, the london metropolitan Police announced a second more extended trial um, which i just find uh, i i find that worrisome um, because uh, we're, we're talking here about something that is incredibly um, high stakes, and um, we, we just we just can't tolerate that level of error. Yeah.
3: And of course, the um, UK um, British Post Office had a very um, um, still going recent um, uh, case of uh, the, the the systems, um, you know, and the um, uh, what are they called the uh, contractors who were working at the post office, um, many were prosecuted um, because the, uh, the systems that the uh, British post office were using said that they had committed fraud and they, in fact, hadn't. Um, and so one of, one of the issues that I see is that uh, it definitely helps rise the, uh, the tide, if you like, but the potential for um, mass impact is, is quite significant. You know, I think that's a, that's that's a uh, that's a risk. One of the things that I really liked in your report too, Ed, was the um, commentary around um, AI being as like a human right in the same way that education is. I thought that was that was some very interesting thinking on that, and something that I quite like, particularly when you apply that to assistive technology. But maybe that's another discussion. But I thought that was quite insightful. Thanks. Okay. All
1: right. Um, well, if I can just quickly respond on that. So we, we talk about it exa- exactly those terms, yeah. um, and um, without being too human rights jargoning about it, we, we we describe it as an enabling right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're um, a person with disability and you want to engage in employment or pretty much any activity these days, even you know accessing government services, the whole lot, um, you really need to be able to access technology these days, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we know um, that many people with disability, a high proportion of people with disability, um, find it difficult to find the, you know, the resources to be able to do that. So that, that's why we've 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 got a number of, I think, relatively modest proposals to ensure that um, people with disability um, have have that access. Um, so tweaks to how the NDIS works, mm-hmm. um, making sure that, for example, um, the NBN. Um, has uh, price plans that are that are going to be achievable um, for for people with disability, mm-hmm. um, because that allows them to live a dignified life. People with disability, so that that yeah. that, that alone um, yeah. is a reason to do it. But if you want to look at it through an economic lens, it yeah. also allows um, people with disability to be more active participants in the economy. Yeah. So that that. Um, in a sense, means that these sorts of um, kind of activities pay for themselves many, many times over, because yeah. it allows people to, in a sense, do what they want and be autonomous sure. in the in the in the world. So, thank you very much for drawing that. That
0: Something I know that is, is close to all of your hearts, and you've all spoken about it, is the the skills issue with regard mm-hmm. to AI. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a long, big, wide, scary, unpredictable road ahead that not a lot of people, or not nearly enough people to kind of ensure that we have this kind of um, vigilance that we've all sort of talked about.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I think this has been a 20-year um, uh, problem, right? You know, the hollowing out of the skills over 20 years, um, uh, outsourcing, contracting out, um, and so forth. So at least the commonwealth level, um, this is a recognised problem. And and it's not just an IT problem either. And so when you have um, AI and these powerful systems and algorithms and large and small tech companies, but particularly the large ones, who are very sophisticated and very effective at marketing, um, you know, so there is this, very interesting dynamic that that we'll be building. So, from a um, from an informed buyer perspective, as well as having uh, skilled people, I know, like in some of the work, well, I've done over the years, I'm still currently doing, the role of psychologists actually in this um, is incredibly important for yeah. designing, particularly these empathetic. Um, um, systems of, of engagement. So that's that's another new another new area. Um, but yes, I personally don't think that the well-intended but reasonably short-term and superficial digital skills academy will will, will work. Um, the mm-hmm. sister, the the challenges are so. It it. I personally think it needs to be of nation-building proportions. The type of um, skills development that are needed. Now we're in the middle of COVID and all that, but, you know, I don't put up with excuses and yeah. um, the community shouldn't either. Yeah. Um, so, so, yes, what, what, what does that all mean? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. All I know, I have a 13-year-old grandson, right, yeah. and the world that, uh, around him is completely different. And that is the world um, that we really need to be focused on. The next ten years, next few years, we'll be voting. You know, so so there's enormous change that is that is that is coming. Mind you, he's a um, uh, a young young man with uh, uh, some disabilities himself, right? right? Um, so so the hollering out of skills, we can't be backward looking and say, you know, oh, we should have been doing this ten years ago. We've got to be forward looking and saying. Um, this is what we need in the next five and 10 and 15 years. And maybe 6G is going to really be a big upending in that. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs>
0: what are your thoughts on that,
2: Ian? Um, and for 6G is pretty impressive, I've got to tell you. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the skills issue is a, is a serious one. But I, I don't think everybody needs to be a data scientist. It, it's yeah. a little bit like maths. Everyone needs some maths in order to survive in modern Basically
0: society. AI, AI arithmetic.
2: Yep. So yeah, so everybody needs, some, <laughs> everyone needs some basic AI understanding, everyone needs some basic data governance understanding, yeah. and also data privacy understanding, and how you handle, and that that should be everywhere from the very beginnings of school, all the way through to people constantly learning in the workplace. Yeah. So I, I think it really is quite a substantial issue. And I think that in government, public service commissions have a role to play. I think the you know a little plug for the Australian Computer Society, they do a lot of work in learning yeah. and development. I think they've got a role to play.
0: Yes, I forgot to mention at the start, you were the current president, yes.
2: So I thought I'd put that plug in there. <laughs> <and, laughs>
3: well done. Yeah,
2: we are having some pretty serious conversations with the digital yes. skills organisations and the, the university sector about mm-hmm. how we create not only the, the sharp end severe skills frameworks, but also what you could do at really basic introductory school level to make sure people have an understanding of this is data about me. These are the sorts of protections I should be thinking about. This is data about someone else. This is how I should be thinking about it. And also if I apply an algorithm to it, these are the sorts of things I should consider. And I think there's a role for that at every stage of life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
2: you, Ed? I agree
1: more. I think that um, Ian's analogy with maths is spot on, you know, We don't all need to take maths to a level that would allow us to um, engineer bridges and and that sort of thing. But but we do need to understand the basic physical world around us um, Mm -hmm. and whether we're living in a city or a farm or whatever, Mm -hmm. there's plenty of maths in that. And I think as our world moves increasingly digital, Mm -hmm. um, that is simply an extension of um, the skill set that we we need, right? So it's not so much a mathematical skill set. But we do need to have basic literacy um, in in terms of how AI operates and um, and 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 that's something we should take seriously. The corollary to that, of course, is something that, that also um, Ian Offman is the current future and eternal president of the Australian computer science if I taking that seriously and that that is that data scientists need to understand their responsibilities to mm. the community, so they need to understand. A modicum of human rights um, knowledge in order to make sure that they're doing the right things by the rest of us.
0: Yeah, so, di- yes, dif- different thinking and different skills in a new world changing in profound ways. Thank you so much, all of you. It was a real pleasure to have you on, and and um, and all the best for um, yeah for the uh, the road ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much.
3: Yeah. Thank you, David.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Now the education sector has been amongst the hardest hit by the pandemic, with lessons, lectures, and even whole degrees disrupted, put on hold, or completely abandoned. Meanwhile, travel restrictions have made a huge dent in university coffers by blocking the usual flow of overseas students to Australia. But many universities have stepped up to the challenge, deploying video conferencing, mobile and cloud-based solutions, as well as more sophisticated AI and other data analysis tools in quick time. To keep students engaged and connected with their institutions and instructors. In our next episode we'll be talking with some of the leading CIOs across the education sector in Australia about the tools and strategies they've deployed to maintain and in some cases increase the standard of education offered. We hope you can join us.